Good morning. In today's headlines, the death toll in Maui passes 100. President Biden pledges assets and a visit and videos of downed power lines add to the scrutiny of local utility companies. Oh, this is live right across the street from my house. Freaking power line just went down. Former President Trump now has 10 days to surrender for arraignment after his fourth indictment. We have the latest on the Georgia election case. Cameras allowed in the courtroom and mugshots. Former President Trump's arraignment in Georgia will likely be very different from his previous ones. We hear from an expert on how that might affect public perception. And we have new information about the U.S. soldier who crossed into North Korea last month. Deepfake fraud is on the rise, but a company is rolling out technology to help high-profile people whose images have been stolen. We hear from the co-founder about how this works. It's been nearly a year and a half since the war in Ukraine began. We take a look at how youth in Russia see their lives and future. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone, and I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, August 16th. And you know, Evelyn, when we look at Trump's legal challenges, an election official in Georgia said ahead of this recent indictment that all these charges are, quote, giving oxygen to his race and that a lot of American people are starting to grow behind him. Right, yeah, but um, a lot of GOP strategists are also concerned that this nonstop um, indictment coverage might wear out support voters that would have otherwise supported him. Right, yeah, and Georgia will be a critical state in the outcome of this election, but we're glad you're here, and we're going to give you the latest on this. Right, uh, former President Trump is facing a total of 91 charges after a fourth indictment in Georgia. He and 18 others who questioned the 2020 election in Georgia are accused of being involved in a criminal enterprise. So what's Trump's next move? Entity's Melina Weiskup is live outside the Fulton County Courthouse with the latest details. Melina, what can you tell us? So the first of these 19 to respond to this indictment is Mark Meadows, who was former President Trump's chief of staff. His attorneys argue that he has the right to move this case to federal court since he was an acting official at the time that these actions took place. Then his lawyer's next move, Meadows' uh, lawyer's next moves will be uh, try to dismiss the case based on the supremacy clause, saying that you know, he's protected. He has immunity here. So this is kind of their step-by-step uh, -step as far as Meadows' case. Uh, Meadows, some of the actions that he was involved with that are mentioned in this indictment against him are a couple of phone calls that he had here with Georgia officials. One, of course, that very hyped-up phone call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Another was less heard of. That was with the Secretary of State Inspector General, where he just talked about, uh, you know, his claims of election fraud. And he also asked if the signature verification process could be sped up, also offering financial compensation if they needed to do so. Another act that's mentioned here against Meadows, which I find pretty interesting, is that he came here to Georgia, to Cobb County, to simply monitor in, uh, the signature verification audit, although he was barred from that. So that's just a very simple fact that's also included in these charges against Mark Meadows. As for him moving it to federal court or his attempt to do so, former President Trump's lawyers could try to do the same thing since he was uh, the sitting president and acting official at the time that these actions took place. Another legal avenue that his lawyers could take is to use the incident on Monday that happened 
where the charges were briefly posted online and then taken down. Trump's lawyers have already criticized this, and they may try to poke holes in the indictment and ultimately try to get it dismissed based on this very fact, claiming prosecutorial misconduct. So that's what's to look for as far as Trump's attorneys, uh, you know, their strategies as far as how they're going to handle this. Now, the DA here says she plans to charge all 19 of these defendants at once within six months, which attorneys say and legal experts say that will be very, very difficult to do. Of course, if people end up moving their cases to federal court, it could uh, lower that number a little bit, which it could become more possible. We'll just have to wait and see. As for how Trump is moving forward on Monday, he will be in New Jersey where he plans to unveil his report of election fraud here in the state of Georgia. Evelyn, Kevin. Thanks for that update, Melina. We'll be checking in with you again soon as you continue to track the story for us in Georgia. Georgia prosecutors also charged 18 more people besides former President Trump. Here's a closer look at the other individuals involved in the case. Conspiracy. The Fulton County District Attorney says the 19 defendants all conspired to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. Some notable defendants besides Trump are former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who worked as Trump's attorney, and Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark, who allegedly advanced Trump's efforts to question his election loss in Georgia. Giuliani released a statement on Tuesday morning, calling the indictment the next chapter in a book of lies with the purpose of framing President Donald Trump and anyone willing to take on the ruling regime. Furthermore, prosecutors charged six lawyers, a former White House aide, three of 16 Georgia Republicans who signed a certificate stating that Trump had won the state, the former director of Black Voices for Trump, a pastor, a publicist, a bail bondsman, and the elections director in Coffee County. The 98-page indictment describes all 19 defendants as members of a criminal organization that operated in Georgia and other states. Trump's top contenders in the GOP primary reacting to the latest indictment in Georgia. That's as the Biden administration tries to stay away from talking about Trump's legal battles. And today's Iris Tao was at the White House. Former President Trump is getting both support and criticism from his 2024 White House Republican contenders. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Tuesday condemned the legal strategy used to indict Trump and calling it an attempt to criminalize politics a RICO statute, which was really designed to be able to go after organized crime, uh, not necessarily to go after uh, political activity. And so uh, I think it's an example uh, of this criminalization of politics. And conservative entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy offered to help Trump, and saying in a Monday tweet that he'd write an amicus brief to the court to show his support, saying prosecutors should not be deciding U.S. presidential elections. But not every Republican candidate is on Trump's side. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson on Tuesday again called for Trump to drop out of the race. That Donald Trump should withdraw from the race, and that case is only made stronger with every uh, indictment and case that is brought against him. And we're also seeing a split of opinions in Congress. Democratic leadership responded in a statement saying no one, not even the president, is above the law. But Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy wrote that justice should be blind, but Biden has weaponized government against its leading political opponent. And all this unfolds as the White House continues to try to stay away from directly commenting on Trump's legal issues. But it did say today that President Biden has spoken on several occasions about protecting the democracy. 
policy. And Biden's also spoken about the need to maintain the independence of the Justice Department. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. Up next, some analysis on the election case in Georgia, where 13 of the 41 charges in the indictment are against former President Trump. It alleges Trump violated Georgia's RICO law involving racketeering conspiracy and accuses Trump of being the leader of a criminal enterprise to overturn the results of the 2020 election in the state. William Jacobson, a lawyer, law school professor at Cornell and blogger, joins us live. It's great to have you with us, William. What burden is on the prosecution to get a conviction here? Well, it's the same burden that's in any criminal case. They have to prove each and every element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. They don't get uh, doubts resolved in their favor. They don't get, uh, you know, uh, the benefit of the doubt. They have to prove it. So the burden's the same as in any criminal case. And is it expected that former President Trump's going to, of course, surrender at Fulton County Jail unless his lawyers seek to waive the arraignment? Do you think that's a possibility? Well, I don't know because the Georgia authorities seem to be fairly politicized about this. They made clear there is going to be a mugshot. I don't know whether they will agree that he can appear remotely as he's done on some court appearances. Generally for the arraignment, he's got to show up. And of course, the Fulton County Sheriff said that there will be mugshots. And in Georgia, cameras are allowed in the courtroom. So how do you think this is going to affect public perception here, given that this is very different from his other arraignments? Yeah, I, I think it's really important. I, I'm glad there are going to be cameras in the courtroom as long as it's done in a, you know, not like court TV sort of fashion in a, in a dignified fashion. Because I think this is so, these charges are so serious for our political system that people should be able to see what the evidence is that might help Trump, it might hurt Trump. We don't know because we don't know what it's going to be. But rather than relying on news reports and snippets, I think it's important for people to see everything. And Trump's then chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is trying to have the prosecution move to federal court so he can have it dismissed using these federal immunity defense. What obstacles does he face in achieving this? Well, I, I think the main obstacle is that he's invoking a federal statute that allows somebody, a former federal official or a federal official, to get out of state court into federal court anything related to their official conduct. The concept being that states can't harass federal officials. The question would be when he was acting for Donald Trump in that time period, was he acting as a government official, as the White House chief of staff, or was he acting more privately for the campaign? I think he'll win that. I think he will get this, at least his case, sent to federal court. Let's talk about the slate of pro-Trump electors in Georgia. That's a big part of this indictment, and D.A. Willis alleges that it was a corrupt attempt to sow chaos in the electoral vote count. But some legal experts say that this was just normal political activity and that these are protected by the First Amendment. So, one, was this illegal? Well, th that's the question. I, I don't see that it was illegal because this is something that has been done in other instances. It's never prosecuted. After Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump, there was a widespread effort to convince electors to go rogue, to not vote the way their state had voted. There was a pressure campaign on them. Their home addresses were released. Nobody got prosecuted for that. So that's essentially what Donald Trump was doing. He was trying to convince state officials that he had actually won. Of course, none of the state officials went along with it. But I don't I see that as anything other than normal political behavior. You may not like it, and we may condemn it, but that doesn't make it criminal, and that's the key distinction. Okay, so William, we've established that there is reason to believe that this is not illegal, but even if it wasn't illegal, could the prosecution use it to show furtherance of a broader illegal scheme? 
Well, I think that's the question I've had with both this indictment and the one in the District of Columbia. What is the actual crime that was committed? It is not a crime to argue you unfairly lost the election. It's not a crime to lobby government officials to change their views on things. And so what that's what I'm not seeing is, again, I don't you know, uh, embrace what he did. I think he should have moved on from the election, but we can't criminalize politics. And that's the problem. We seem to be wanting to criminalize politics. Excellent analysis, Tashara William Jacobson, lawyer and law school professor at Cornell. Thank you for your time. Great, thank you. Trump's direct messages on Twitter were obtained by the special counsel on the January 6th case. This was before the social media company suspended his account, according to newly unsealed documents. The revelation comes after a fight with Twitter on the legality of accessing Trump's social media. The unsealed documents from a court hearing last February show prosecutors were looking for private communications between Trump and his senior advisors. It says they were looking for messages they viewed as vital to presidential decision making. Special counsel Jack Smith also received draft tweets and location data. The indictment of Trump two weeks ago cites only public tweets the former president made, but no private communications. And Trump's Mar-a-Lago property manager pleaded not guilty in the classified document cases yesterday. He's accused of conspiring with the former president to delete security footage at the Palm Beach Club. And coming up for you, we have updates on the Maui wildfire. A portable morgue unit arrives to help identify remains. President Biden pledges support and the island's electric companies face class action lawsuits. Also, state investigators in Kansas have launched a probe into last week's police raid at a local newspaper office. The paper is accused of sharing information that was obtained illegally. Good to have you back. The death toll in the Maui wildfires is now at, at least 106. Hawaii Governor Josh Green said identifying remains will be difficult and could take weeks. A portable morgue unit arrived yesterday to help identify and process remains. Officials said only five people were identified yesterday afternoon. The governor said fingerprints are rarely being found. He's calling for family members of those missing to provide DNA samples to help with the process. The island's utility companies are now under fire. First responders reported weak water pressure and fire hydrants running dry in the town of Lahaina that was devastated by the fire last week. A lawsuit filed against four electric companies alleges that fallen power lines were responsible for triggering the spread of the fire. Broken alarms and videos from security cameras and witnesses have added to the scrutiny. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the disaster and the response. As the death toll passes 100, the search for missing people in Maui continues. We now have 185 search and rescue individuals on the ground plus 20 dogs. So we're going to push through the recovery much more quickly now. Hopefully by the end of this weekend, much of it will be done. Green says it's unclear how many people are unaccounted for, as many had to leave all they had behind and may not have their phones. The governor has cautioned the death toll could double or even triple over the next week as searchers with cadaver dogs continue to comb through the ashes. Authorities said Tuesday roughly a third of the search area has been covered. Maui's police chief says he hopes 85 to 90 percent of the area will have been searched by the weekend. 
Electric companies on the island are facing criticism in class action lawsuits. They're being accused of negligence for not shutting off power during high wind warnings and keeping it on even as poles began to topple. A lawyer behind the lawsuit is interviewing witnesses and collecting videos. Footage from a Maui Bird Conservation Center security camera shows a bright flash followed by a fire. Data from Whisker Labs, an analytic company that monitors electric grids in the U.S., recorded a significant incident in the town where the footage was taken at the same time as the flash. A company official from the lab said it was likely an arc flash from a damaged power line. One witness to downlines live-streamed his attempts to battle the blaze with his garden hose after calling emergency services the day the fire started. Oh, this is live right across the street from my house. Freaking power line just went down. His footage has emerged as key evidence pointing to fallen utility lines as the possible cause. But he says he doesn't blame the electric company. The wind was so crazy, nothing could have determined that it would snap those lines. Because if it was blowing the roof off my house, honestly, it was like, I wouldn't blame them. Like, I wouldn't put it like, oh, it's your fault, because the wind was crazy. It was smoking so hard. Hawaiian Electric says it's restored power to about 80% of its customers. The S&P Global downgraded the company's credit rating to junk on Tuesday, and shares dropped by over 30%. A Hawaii Emergency Management Agency spokesperson says the island's network of roughly 400 alarms did not activate as the fire spread. The state's governor says the broken sirens are part of an ongoing investigation by the Attorney General. The National Fire Protection Association says the Maui wildfires are the deadliest in the U.S. in over 100 years. The cause has not yet been determined. A Pentagon spokesperson said Tuesday the U.S. military is supporting FEMA's efforts to provide federal assistance to residents. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And Senator Dianne Feinstein is suing the trustees of her late husband's estate. The suit was filed by her daughter, who has power of attorney for Feinstein. The lawsuit alleges financial elder abuse and breach of trust by the trustees. It accuses them of wrongfully withholding distributions. Feinstein was entitled to and diverting assets that should have gone to her. Her husband, Richard Blum, was said to have a net worth of nearly $1 billion at the time of his death last February. The couple had been married since 1980. An attorney for the trustees said they acted ethically and appropriately at all times and called the filing unconscionable. Feinstein's Senate office described the case as a private legal matter and had no comment. The Kansas Bureau of Investigation has initiated a criminal investigation into the police raid of a Kansas newspaper office last week. The raid sparked outrage from journalists across the U.S. who see it as a violation of the First Amendment. The main focus of the investigation has not yet been disclosed, but according to the agency, it relates to allegations of illegally accessing and disseminating confidential information. Last Friday's raid at the Marion County record saw police seize cell phones, computers, and documentation at the newspaper's office and those of a local councilwoman. The 98-year-old co-owner of the paper, whose house was also searched, died the following day. The newspaper attributes her death to stress associated with the raid. The paper's editor has referred to the raid as Gestapo tactics. He denies any accusations of illicitly obtaining or sharing information. The record's attorney said he remains optimistic about the investigation, adding that the paper acted according to the journalist's code of ethics and should not be criminalized for doing the work of reporters. 
definitely a big story there. Big story, yeah. I understand the, um, the, the concerns there, but you know, who knows? Yes, reporters need to be able to do their work. And coming up, China's largest developer has slipped into a financial crisis. How serious are the aftershocks and what should we expect? We bring an expert to tell us more. Also, we have new information about the U.S. soldier who crossed the North Korean border last month. That's after the break. Say goodbye to harsh, bitter coffee and hello to a delicious, smooth brew. With specialty quality beans expertly roasted in-house, you'll taste the difference with every sip. Fermented with a blend of 50 enzymes, Day's Coffee delivers a rich brew like no other. Made with the highest grade specialty beans available, you're sure to taste the difference. Elevate your morning with Day's Enzyme Fermented Coffee. Good to have you back. Another Chinese real estate developer has slipped into a financial crisis. China's largest developer is seeking to delay payments and is ringing alarm bells. China's real estate sector has suffered tumbling sales, tight liquidity, and a series of developer defaults since late 2021. At the center of the debt crisis was property giant Evergrande. China's largest private real estate developer, Country Garden, was once seen as financially robust. What would it mean if Country Garden wasn't able to pay its debt? And what's the risk of contagion? We bring in David Goldman, deputy editor of Asia Times and president of Macro Strategy LLC. Good morning, David. To start, I want to point out that real estate accounts for around 25% of China's economy. So what could a potential Country Garden, another developer default mean for China's economy? How worrisome is it? Well. It's important to remember that this crisis was engineered by Beijing, by the Communist Party, uh, with malice aforethought. For the last 40 years, China has moved, what, 700 million people from countryside to city, and this produced the greatest land boom ever. Uh, an enormous number of people, including uh, local governments and their developer friends, have gotten very wealthy from this, and it's led to a very poor utilization of capital. Chinese households, for example, have 7% of their assets in property, uh, and only 10% in stocks. In the United States, it's more like 44% in stocks. So this clearly couldn't go on forever, and uh, the crisis was precipitated gradually over the past years by the People's Bank of China and other agencies squeezing credit to developers. So, this is a politically driven, intentional crisis. Uh, is it dangerous? Yes. Is it manageable? Uh, I believe so. Uh, there are lots of indications that there isn't contagion in the financial sector and that the fallout is going to be uh, manageable. Uh, I think that, the, uh, that Beijing is trying to shift the bulk of Chinese investment away from real estate into industry, particularly high-tech, so-called fourth industrial revolution real estate. And this is a painful, bloody, politically driven transition. 
but it's not a 2008 crisis uh, like we had in the United States. So uh, there was quite a, th a few things going on there, just to sum up and see if I understand cr you correctly. Um, the, in, in your, what you're trying to say is the regime saw that the real estate bubble, if you, if you so will, got, has gotten too big, and now this is a um, politically driven effort to put, to redirect the money to somewhere else. Is that right? Absolutely, and it's also a power struggle between Beijing and local governments, which have had their own funding sources. So, bottom line here, what's going to happen next to China's economy? Do you think um, there is reason to worry? What, what's going what's to be needed to get that curve, so to speak? Well, at some point, uh, there will be a political solution where uh, Beijing will decide that it's administered enough pain to uh, local governments and will bail them out. Uh, we're talking, remember, about um, anywhere between 35 and 70 trillion RMB, or 5 to 10 trillion U.S. dollars of off-the-books local government debt. And the cost of servicing that, of course, a tiny fraction of that, about 3 or 4% of that. So that is a manageable number from the standpoint of the size of the Chinese economy. Goldman Sachs is, is predicting that the total amount of defaults on trust products, this is the uh, high yield products uh, issued by Chinese financial institutions to savers, will be about $40 billion. Uh, that's something like one or 2% of the total float. So the numbers we're talking about are not uh, unmanageable. In the uh, 2008 crisis, by contrast, we had $2 trillion worth of home equity loans securitized, and the market price of that dropped by about $500 billion, and we needed a trillion dollar bailout. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to have a very choppy situation for the Chinese economy, very low growth for the, at least another year, uh, very uncertain property market, uh, and the real question from the standpoint of uh, the Chinese Communist Party is, can it persuade private entrepreneurs to go out and take risk again after they've been you know, hiding uh, in foxholes for the past three or four years. Uh, so I think it will be choppy, it will be painful, but we're not talking about a systemic crisis, uh, just a very difficult and, uh, as I said, painful transition. Right. Right. Um, thank you so much for your insights here. I hear a lot of mixed opinions, and then there is a lot of other um, aspects coming in, like restrictions on Chinese imports, for instance, from the international market. I think it's definitely good to keep an eye on that, and I really appreciate your expert insights today. Thank you, David Goldman. I appreciate your time. Oh, uh, thank you for the invitation. Nice to talk. Bye now. Now, some news from North Korea as well. Officials there issued a statement confirming a U.S. soldier entered the country's territory. Private Travis King, who was stationed in South Korea, crossed into North Korea last month. North Korea claims he entered the country due to racial discrimination in the U.S. Army. It's the first time North Korea confirmed the border crossing. King entered North Korean territory while on a civilian tour of the Joint Security Area on the heavily fortified border. According to North Korean state media, King crossed into the country with the intent to stay or go to a third country. King previously faced two allegations of assault in South Korea. He pleaded guilty to one of the allegations, as well as to damaging a police car. 
He was meant to return to the U.S. to face more disciplinary action after finishing military detention in South Korea. The U.S. has not been able to verify North Korea's statements and has so far declined to classify King as a prisoner of war, despite being in North Korea's custody. The Pentagon says it remains focused on his safe return. And now to some short headlines from around the world. A wildfire in southern France has left about 400 people without accommodation. Close to 3,000 vacationers on four campsites were evacuated earlier this week. Most were available to return to their campsites yesterday. Firefighters say one of the campsites and one house were destroyed by the blaze. Poland yesterday held its biggest military parade since the Cold War. It saw 2,000 soldiers from Poland and other NATO countries march through the capital, accompanied by 200 items of military equipment and 92 aircraft. The government has made boosting the army a priority and vowed to double its size. Germany's government is set to approve a plan to decriminalize possession of limited amounts of cannabis. It would allow adult members of cannabis clubs to buy it for recreational purposes. A judge's organizations say the move that is likely to increase the burden on the judicial system and more demand for black market cannabis. The plan will still be need to be approved by parliament. Ukraine says Russian drone strikes damaged grain silos and warehouses at a Ukrainian river port on the Danube. The port of Reni is a vital wartime route for Ukrainian food exports after Moscow quit a deal that had allowed Kyiv to ship out grain via the Black Sea. The local governor says there were no casualties. And of course, Poland is giving a show of if so force there, whereas before they were just putting their troops right on the border with Belarus there after the Wagner forces moved in. Right. And yet President uh, Lukashenko said that their presence was temporary. Yes. And even Belarusian residents were very concerned about their arrival there. Mm-hmm. So soon we have more coverage for you coming up. U.S. celebrities are the target of scams. It involves the use of AI to create deep fake videos to trick people into buying products. Find out how this is being counteracted when we come back. Good to have you back. A California bill would require electric vehicles to be capable of sending back energy to the grid. That's Senate Bill 233. It was introduced by Democratic Senator Nancy Skinner. Here's NTD's Jack Bradley with more details. Good morning, Evelyn. A bill is making its way through the legislature in California, and it would require all new electric vehicles sold in the state after 2030 to be bi-directional. And this means that they can operate as energy generators and send power back to the grid. This bill has already passed through the Senate and is currently moving through the Assembly. Now Pacific Gas and Electric, which is California's largest utility, has even shown support for utilizing this bi-directional charging in emergencies like heatwave-induced blackouts. So how would this new bill potentially impact California's electricity supply? To impact this, I spoke with Ronald Stein, an energy consultant and author of Clean Energy Exploitations. Rather than focusing on what they do best, generate electricity, PG&E is considering the unconventional idea of bi-directional charging with EVs to help stabilize the grid. Now, California has the most EVs in the entire country. And at present, we cannot generate enough electricity here already because California imports more electricity than any other state in the country, now more than 30 percent. 
from adjoining states. Now, Jack, you're a logical person. So I'm gonna ask you a question. If you would bet on a lame horse, let me explain. <laughs> given that given that 40% of all the EVs in the entire country here in California, the most temperate climate in the country, you know, it's never too hot, never too cold, as EV batteries performance is degraded in hot and cold weather. So that leaves the other 60% of the EVs to be divided among the other 49 states today. And that tells us that each state has like 1% of the EVs in the current country. Now, as the future is fast approaching, virtually all the automobile manufacturers have been mandated through government mandates to reduce the emissions of their fleet of vehicles, trying to get down to zero emissions. And they're all going all in to only manufacture EVs, no internal combustion engine cars. And these endless government subsidies to encourage EV sales seems unable to sway the logical thinking and the numerous concerns of the average citizen, you know, to buy into the EVs. Unsold, those unsold electric vehicles that are starting to pile up on lots and they're signaling a death spiral for the auto industry. California passed a law last year that would ban the sale of new gas-powered vehicles by 2035. That's one of many so-called zero-emission vehicle regulations across the country. But one issue is affordability. When you take a look at all the cars sold in America, 75% of them are used. People can't afford new cars. But right now, there is no used car market for EVs. To replace the Tesla battery, that's a $20,000 ticket. That's if you have a small battery. If you have a SUV, it's going to be a bigger battery. So it's um, economically, it's, it's going to be a real challenge for Americans. The demographics of EV owners is predominantly middle-aged white men owning more than 100000 a year. And Social Security shows the national average wage index was slightly over 60000 Big difference. And then U.S. News recently reported that more than 60% of adults are living paycheck to paycheck, and more than 40% of Americans with annual incomes over $100,000 are also living paycheck to paycheck. As the future of America appears to rely more heavily on electric vehicles, the debate over them continues. Evelyn? Thank you very much, Jack. Yeah, and this story raises a lot of questions about the risks. For example, if there's a power outage, that's an emergency. And now all of a sudden you have to forfeit your vehicle and you can't get around anywhere? Exactly. You don't want to be stuck in that situation, how you're going to get your supplies and all that. Yeah. That's a good that's question. Right. So coming up, fraud using deepfake videos is on the rise. That's when a person's image is stolen and manipulated to create new content. We bring in an expert to explain more about how this works. And also. Here for some discussion is Alan Ikoev, the co-founder of FameFlow. Thank you so much for your time today, Alan. Nice to meet you, Kevin. According to SumSub, in the U.S., deepfakes are now used over 10 times more in fraud. That's, you know, since 2022. So what measures are being taken to detect these deepfakes effectively? Uh, almost none of them. So right now we are trying to focus on uh, detecting celebrity deepfake frauds. Uh, because for mainly two reasons. First, it's obviously that's more lucrative. It's easier to spot because those defects are used in uh, in uh, commercial frauds, especially in uh, defect commercials to advertise fraud, fraudulent products, uh, crypto scams, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So those 
investigations are ongoing investigations, but for like general public, there's almost nothing. Tell us a little bit more about these commercial deep freight frauds and how they work. So essentially, that will work that way. Uh, there is several production studios in based outside of U.S., mainly in Russia, some of them in China. So uh, they uh, select celebrity, well-known personality in the United States, in Europe, or foreign celebrity, and they um, they start to just uh, create content with the people who resemble them, lookalikes, and then polish all this content with the AI in order to look exactly like a celebrity. Then they will go to Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, trying to target uh, and pass through the Facebook fraud detection system and uh, trying to target like the US audience in order to make them purchase or just scam them. So what happens when a deep fake fraud is detected and these investigators are looking into it and they may even find out who did it? What can be done? Well. Uh, there is essentially two main problems. First of all, uh, if, even if you find the, the deep fake fraud, you have to understand like if you can't even suit the person, where is the person? You have to locate them all. And even if you've done that, there might be like there might be no benefits to suit them. It's just a waste of time at some point because they don't have uh, even enough revenue to cover the, the lawsuit. So that that this is the problem. So are any way that these high-profile people can protect themselves? Yeah, right now we are trying to develop, we are in, in the process of developing the, the software that can scan the web and immediately detect the fraudulent activities. And then we will apply this software for superstar celebrities to the general public. But that will be later down online, probably in summer 2024. So what do they do with this software once you hand this off to them? Um, they can just uh, upload themselves and our bot will go on the web and see every single picture and understand if this picture is legitimately used for commercial purposes or not and will ask the publisher to take it down immediately. That is a very interesting way of approaching this problem. Well, Alan Ikoev, co-founder of FameFlow, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Kevin. And you know, Alvin, he was telling me that there just are not enough lawsuits in the works right now to bring restoration to these victims. Yeah, I mean, there is truth. You can tell them to take it down, but will they? At the same time, if they take it down, what about all the copies that exist at that point? Right. So, difficult yes. question. We're heading into break now. Coming up, the Commerce Department has released new numbers on U.S. retail sales. Entity business host Don Ma brings us closer. And how is the war affecting Russia's youth? Some of them shared stories of new focus, isolation, and hope as they adjust to reality and move on. Stay tuned for more on that. Good to have you back with us. U.S. Commerce Department just released new data on retail sales. The figure shows a better than expected 0.7% in July over June. We're joined by Entity Business host Don Ma to tell us more. Good morning, Don. Morning, Kevin. So new, new, US, new U.S. retail sales number were released recently. So can you give us the latest on this? Yeah, sure, of course. As you mentioned, 0.7%. Uh, um, and you mentioned as well, it's better than expected uh, in July. So what this means is it seems like Americans increased their online purchases and dined out more. 
Um, the higher than expected spending from consumers likely uh, was helped by Amazon's Prime Day as well last month, if you remember that. Um, and by the way, that was the biggest on record. So definitely gave a boost there. Um, parents also appeared to have started their back to school shopping early, drive, driving up sales in other categories. Clothing store sales increased. Consumers spent more on sporting goods, you know, hobbies, books, musical instruments. Um, things like that. Grocery store sales rose as well. So consumer demand is being underpinned by uh, by strong wages and from a tight labor market. And let me tell you, this strong spending actually prompted economists at Goldman Sachs to raise their third quarter GDP estimates for the U.S. You know, what what this means is is that the consumer is strong, obviously. It's suggesting as well the U.S. economy is continuing to expand uh, early in the third quarter, and this is keeping recession fears at bay, uh, which is good. This is all good news, Kevin. But I have to point out that this could also be a double-edged sword because stocks on Wall Street traded lower on this news yesterday. Um, investors were actually worried that strong spending from consumers could put upwards pressure on inflation, you know, because inflation is simply just a function of supply and demand. Um, so in turn, they're worried that the Federal Reserve would consider at least further rate hikes or perhaps keeping rates higher for longer, and people don't want that. So do you have anything else for us, Dan? Yeah, uh, it seems like streaming bills are now more expensive than cable TV. Um, according to a report by the Financial Times, um, top U.S. streaming services have all raised their prices recently. Uh, that's including Netflix, Disney Plus, and Hulu. Services now cost an average of $87 a month uh, compared to previously $83 for an equivalent cable package. Um, that's over $10 higher than one year ago. The price hikes coincide with rising interest rates and fierce competition in the industry. So besides that, Disney is facing a lawsuit for allegedly breaching contract. Uh, Avatar's funding group TSG Entertainment is suing Disney for withholding at least $40 million in profits. The lawsuit accuses Disney of doing this to boost the stock price of its streaming platforms. TSG claimed that the practice deprived it of cash to invest in more individual movies. And besides that, a federal effort to protect Americans' personal information online. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau wants to set new guidelines for companies that track and sell consumers' information. The goal of the new rules is to safeguard Americans from data breaches, uh, criminals, and even AI chatbots. Now, the proposal could bar companies from selling certain types of consumer information, uh, you know, like income and payment history, which is all very important. The new rules haven't been yet finalized, um, but that's all from me this morning. Well, hopefully they can be enacted because, of course, in this information age, it's so important to secure that data. Well, thank you so much, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Yeah, you're right, Kevin. Thank you. It's a nice update from Don. A lot of good tips. Yeah, always good to hear from him. Yes. And coming up, Russia's younger generation is adapting their life goals as the war rages on. We have some stories of hope when we come back.
It's good to have you back with us. And it's been nearly a year and a half since the war in Ukraine began. Many young people, both Russian and Ukrainian, have lost their lives in the ongoing battle in the war-torn country. But what about the youth in Russia further away from the conflict? NTD's Daniel Monahan has a look at how they're doing. University student Maxim Lukonyanko says he was supposed to begin reserve officer training on the day of the invasion. He is the co-founder of the patriotic group called White Raven. The student says the war has forced Russia to turn more toward the east as Europe has shut down for them. I think that the future is in the east. A lot of interesting things will come from the east. I see my future in building bridges between Russia and the east. Lukonyanko says he loves foreign languages, speaking English, Spanish, German, and recently started learning Chinese. I plan to study a master's course in China. I'd like to learn something interesting. I think they are very interesting people, an interesting nation. In general, Russia does need to strengthen ties with China. They are top lads. We need to learn something from them and to teach them something, of course. University graduate Sabina had originally planned to go abroad to a university in Finland to continue her studies. Now it seems that I should not go anywhere, not without my family at least, because okay, I might go away, but who knows what might happen next. Something might happen to them if they don't leave the country with me. Although the pull to see more of the world is strong, Sabina fears not being able to return. She says for Russians, it now seems you are either on one side of the border or the other. I simply love Moscow. I love Moscow so much. I love my native Abkhazia, and I cannot get there from any country in the world apart from Russia. It is so difficult to part not only with my relatives, but with my home as well. Local political council member Konstantin Konkov is busy with public activism, especially through politics and ecology. I organize this event, but also volunteer at events organized by others. We set up neighborhood cleanups. We help animal shelters. We collect aid for refugees. Naturally, we have people of different views, but we are united in our desire to help people in trouble. Konkov says he's the only independent municipal deputy on the council. The rest are all from Russia's ruling party. The council member says most of the activists he knows have left Russia since the war broke out, which he says makes things very difficult. However, the young politician says there's nothing to do but to just adjust to the new reality and carry on. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Well, those certainly are the consequences of war. Mm, very unexpected consequence that, you know, that one young man expect, thought that he was being pushed to the east and strengthening ties with the east, like China. Anyway, um, interesting insights right there. Thank you for watching today. That's it. You can write us at goodmorning at ntd.com if you'd like. That's it for today. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.